two and a half admins episode 96 i'm joe i'm jim and i'm alan and here we are again and before we get started a couple of plugs alan firstly the zfs developer job is still open yes so if you want to come join the clara team and work on zfs we're looking to hire zfs developers it's fully remote full-time it'll be great fun pays really well get in touch and and we'll talk all right and you've got another webinar Actually, Jim and I have a webinar coming up uh, July 12th at 1 o'clock Eastern. We will be talking about open source virtualization and how to get started with Beehive. Which is FreeBSD's hypervisor for those of you who aren't in the know. We'll talk about how it's different from other hypervisors, some of the building blocks and what the different components are and how you could use them. And then talk a bit about the management tools and frameworks and some tips on how to get the most performance uh, when you're virtualizing Windows. Right, well, links in the show notes as usual. Let's do some news then. And the first one is that Internet Explorer is kind of dead. Kind of? <laughs> I'm, I'm going to go with it's, it's dead, Jim. Well, except it's not because it's still supported on some extended support versions of Windows 7 and 8.1 and server and stuff. So it's dead in Windows 10, but it's still not 100% dead. I don't know if it's only it's still supported on some of those older ones because they don't have modern versions of Edge or what it's about or just that, you know. Microsoft is loath to actually pull the rug out from anyone. But yeah, this has been a long time coming, I think. It's been a very long time that we've been saying Internet Explorer is the best browser to download another browser. Although, you know, honestly, Internet Explorer was never the best browser to download another browser either. I'm going to give those honors to WGET. <laughs> There's uh, quite a history with Internet Explorer. I think the first version I really used, I think, was 4 on Windows 98. And then I remember the big deal as a kind of beginner web developer dealing with IE6 and the fact that it, it finally could do AJAX and you could do asynchronous JavaScript. And it was all XML back then and, and dealing with that, especially over the years, just the amount of weird stuff that happened in web servers and in JavaScript and so on to deal with the fact that Internet Explorer was always a very quirky browser, like purposely putting a giant HTML comment in an error page so that Internet Explorer would actually display your error page, because if it was too short, it would just use its internal error page to try not to show the basic, you know, 404 and that's it kind of error pages that default in Apache and so on. So you'd have to like pad out the error page and make it at least a kilobyte or whatever so that Internet Explorer would actually display the page the web server returned rather than just displaying its own internal thing that didn't say that it was from your website. I also hated its, you know, quote unquote, friendly error pages because they frequently weren't very clear as to what error you actually encountered. And I'm like, I would have preferred to just see HTTP 404 than, you know, this big, like airbrushed, you know, happy thing. <laughs> yeah, that was always vague. And it's like, it's not going to tell you who you can contact about the website networking or something because it's one generic page is on every website or by the browser. So, yeah, it was all kinds of uh, problematic. But I just remember things like the meta refresh and just weird other things you would have to do and mm -hmm. like things you would find in your Apache or Nginx configs to like deal with the fact that Internet Exploder does silly things when you send it this or it doesn't respect the MIME type properly. So if you do this wrong, you'll send back gzipped results and the browser will offer a download or display the binary gzip instead of actually decompressing it and displaying the, the real content. I first encountered Internet Explorer in the IE3 days and was angry at it because it sucked. And then IE4 came out, and that was the one brief shining moment in 20 years, I think, of Internet Explorer history that it was actually, at least in my opinion, 
the best browser available out there. But you know, then once once Phoenix hit, you know, the predecessor to Firefox, like it, it was it was all over. It, Internet Explorer was never the best choice for anybody again. Yeah, for sure. I also remember being incredibly annoyed in those days with just the legions of confused Windows people who decided that since Microsoft made a browser, it should be the only browser anybody used and would actually put JavaScript in their web pages to just deliver a big F you to anybody who was using a browser that didn't have IE, you know, in the user agent. They'd be like, nope, you need Internet Explorer for this website. You know, you fake your user agent string and go in there with, you know, Firefox or whatever, and the site works fine. The only reason you need Internet Explorer is because this asshole web dev put JavaScript in to force you to only use Internet Explorer. Still see some of that today. So he's like, yeah, you have to use Chrome or go away. We only test in Chrome. (laughs) You know, I'm fine with a notice like we only test in Chrome. If those devs back in the day had just said we've only tested and some did, to be fair, like, you know, people who said We've only done QA on this site, you know, in Internet Explorer or whatever their favorite browser was. So if you have other errors, you're kind of on your own. All right, fine. That's fair. It would be nice if, you know, you tested everything and did whatever and blah, blah, blah. But usually when you encountered that kind of message, it's like, okay, this is just like some person's site. Like, I'm not going to be like, you can't have a web page if you don't test it with every browser in existence. No, just don't actively deliberately break things if I'm not using your special Snowflake browser. So now they've got Edge as the replacement, and that has actually got the Internet Explorer mode in it for those really old websites that somehow still need IE. It might or might not work. I couldn't tell you. Yeah, I've I've definitely not needed that lately and, and been happy for that. I know a number of years ago, I had to go get like Firefox portable version 14 or something to get something old enough that it would talk to this terrible old switch. But I don't have to do that anymore. So it's been a while since uh, I've had to play with that. Usually my issue with that, it technically wasn't the browser. It's like dealing with uh, some of the old HP printers that required Java plugin in the browser to interact with them at all. I used to have to use some old portable Firefox or whatever for that reason. You know, after the entire rest of the world was like, you cannot have Java in the browser because it's not safe. It was never safe. It will never be safe. And meanwhile, HP's like, <laughs> Java required. I think mine was the switch was so old, it, it had a 512-bit RSA key or something that's long been not allowed by, you know, SSL v3 or <laughs> anything else. And I just needed an old enough Firefox that would still let me say, I know this is wrong, but let me look at it anyway. Right. Override the cert error. Yeah, because I think I even, the terrible things I had to do to the Java as well to make the Java willing to accept uh, the certificate that was that weak and so easy to forge. I saw an article recently in the register about Cisco small business routers that have got a critical vulnerability, but they're not going to get patched. And some of these routers, although they're old models, were still sold up until 2019. So some people may have bought them three years ago, and now they have to just scrap them. That doesn't seem right to me. You know, I'm, I'm falling back into a well-worn rut as the most curmudgeonly curmudgeon on a show of curmudgeons. But I think a lot of the message here is, you know, if you're a small business, maybe Cisco's not the answer for you. You're not really big enough for them to much care about. And it shows. And I guess three years is probably long enough that you're not going to see, you know, a class action saying you yanked the rug out from under us after we bought this device. But at the same time, 
what is the amount of time that should be acceptable for the vendor to drop support for a device? Should every device you buy have a best before date on the box? So when you buy it, you know that after that date, I shouldn't expect support anymore. That's kind of a neat idea. I think I kind of like that. Like, you know, right on the box, like supported until yada yada. Now, the interesting question then just becomes like, you want that to be like a minimum date. You don't, you don't want it to be like a, you know, oh, well, you, you've just said you can't sell it anymore by then. So like, how do you deal with that in, in old stock? But yeah, I, I definitely do like the idea of saying definitely supported until whatever date, like on the box, that, that would be nice. But I see your point, like, how did we not make that just cause even more e-waste because any units not sold as that date starts to approach just automatically get junked without ever being opened? I don't know that there's an easy answer to that. I, I do think that, you know, a lot of what ends up creating e-waste, particularly when we're talking about down at the small business in Soho level, a lot of what drives new models of routers is not, oh, we have this new hardware and it's so much more capable and performant now. It's frequently more along the lines of, oh, this is where we found the bargain bin of, you know, a hundred thousand of these ancient chips at really discount prices. So this is what we're basing our cheap router on for the next couple of years until we run out of, you know, this bargain basement grab lot that we got. And then we'll shift to the next garbage thing. When you see router models, particularly from vendors like, um, well, TP-Link is one of them. When you look at uh, particularly their their home and small business targeted routers on the lower end, you'll frequently see the same apparently router model, but then you look at it and there's like hardware rev A, B, C, D, E. And sometimes the revs don't even last a year before they shift. And that's what you're seeing when you see that. You're seeing a router that's been built as cheaply as possible by using whatever parts they could scrounge and, and glom together very inexpensively. And when they run out of the really good deal on that part, well, now it's time for a new model. And the unfortunate thing about that is the new model isn't going to be driver compatible with the old one. So now, you know, you've got different firmware, you go to upgrade the firmware on the device. And if it's not one that automatically updates, you know, you sometimes have to figure out, do I have Rev A, B, C, D, E, or F? (laughs) Because there's different firmwares or, you know, different ones. And if you put the wrong one on, it's going to brick it. (laughs) It will brick it. Yep. A lot of the times it won't detect beforehand. It will just cheerfully brick itself. And we're starting to see better practices with that. Um, Most vendors these days, they're doing that kind of thing. We'll build like a unified architecture firmware, kind of like what uh, Apple did with M1 stuff when, you know, you'd have an executable with both M1 and x86 binaries like inside the same package and it would figure out what it needed to do. There's a lot of firmware packages now that do the same thing. Like the firmware package as it loads will figure out, okay, which part of me do I need to actually flash here? And that's nice when it happens. Like you said, with the driver support, it's a, a big problem with even laptops and so on is that, you know, there's a certain model of laptop. It works for a bunch of people. You tell people to go buy it, but they bought it later and now they get a different revision and, and oh, the Wi-Fi chip's not the same and it's not going to work. I think one piece of advice that I could give small businesses that don't want to have to deal with with router replacements, because let's be honest here, the, the biggest issue here is not the cost of the hardware, it's the disruption you know, of saying, oh, we have to get a new one, we have to configure it, that's probably going to require getting a consultant in here, or it's going to require, you know, my nephew who's good at computer or whatever. (laughs) That's usually the real issue. A few hundred bucks for a router, if that breaks your small business, your small business was going to break. But if you want to avoid that kind of disruption, probably the best advice I could give you would be to ditch all of the 
dedicated router hardware solutions and grab a generic small form factor x86 box with a couple of interfaces and pay somebody to set up OpenSense for you. OpenSense is a router distribution that can be installed on generic x86-64 hardware. It's high performant, and you know, you're know you not going to have the same kind of issue. As new versions of OpenSense come out, the interface may look a little different, but they're still going to go on the same hardware for you know a decade plus at a time easily. Yeah, and it really does give you that longevity. Because the other thing you probably want to avoid is getting sold too much of a, a complete system. Like, you don't want to be, oh, it's time to replace our router. That means we also have to replace every access point in the building and yeah. so on. And it gets real crazy when you get some of those things where it's all integrated into a cloud that can have a lot of advantages. It's just, you know, you have to plan for that. When that cloud controller is the thing that needs to replace, that means all of the parts have to go at once. Looking at you, Ubiquity, looking at you. But yeah, these Cisco flaws is especially bad with the, you know, CVSS score of 9.8 out of 10. And so it literally is, if you have this, you have to buy something new and check it because it's really critical vulnerability and not going to be fixed. Before we move on from this, uh, there is one last note that I'd like to make, and it's an unusual one for this show. That's going to be to hold Microsoft up as an example <laughs> of a better player. When you have a really, really bad vulnerability get discovered in a recently obsolesced version of Windows, Microsoft generally just goes ahead and fixes it because they're like, okay, we know there's a lot of people still using this. Yes, it's out of support, but like this is a really critical vulnerability. So we're going to go ahead and give you a fix for that one. Even though we don't fix all the little bugs anymore and it's technically not supported, we're not going to let this stand. And Cisco really should have done that here. I, I question whether the cost to mitigate some 9.8 plus severity, you know, CVEs, was that really so expensive that Cisco couldn't afford to fix like just that one thing? And again, pull the Microsoft and just be like, look, no, the device is not supported, but we'll fix that. Yeah, it's best effort, but we are maybe uh, for the public good, we're actually going to fix this because it turns out it's our toxic waste that we put out in the world. Maybe we should be responsible for cleaning it up. I don't know how much of what Microsoft does there is altruistic and how much of it is that there's still some customer paying for the extended support on that version to keep it going. And they had to write the fix anyway, so they might as well give it to everybody just to prevent creating more problems in the world? Well, two notes. One, I did not use the word altruism. Right. And two, what you just described is still altruism yes. because, you know, right. they created it to sell to the other person, but then they still gave it to everybody else. So whether you want to call it altruism or not, it, it's good practice. It's investing a little bit of developer effort and or, you know, potential lost sales to a greater good for them as well as everybody else. Because, you know, I mean, here I am of all people saying, hey, look, here's Microsoft being a good player in this space, you know? Yeah. If you can't meet the bar set by Microsoft for not being a douche, maybe you should reevaluate <laughs> your, your corporate practices. Now we're back to the Microsoft hate. Thanks for bringing us back on track, Alan. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I'm here for. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Linode. Go to linode.com slash 25A, support the show, and get $100 free credit. From their award-winning support, offered 24-7, 365 to every level of user, to ease of use and setup, it's clear why developers have been trusting Linode for projects both big and small since 2003. Deploy your entire application stack with Linode's one-click app marketplace, or build it all from scratch and manage everything yourself with supported centralized tools like Terraform. 
and check out their managed MySQL, Postgres, and MongoDB databases that allow you to quickly deploy a new database and defer management tasks like configuration, managing high availability, disaster recovery, backups, and data replication. Simple and fast to deploy with secure access, their flexible plans include daily backups. So go to leno.com slash 25A, create a free account, and you get $100 in credit and support the show. That's leno.com slash 25A. Let's do some free consulting then. But first, just a quick thank you to everyone who supports us with PayPal and Patreon. We really do appreciate that. You can go to 2.5admins.com slash support to learn more. And remember, for $5 or more per month on Patreon, you can get an advert-free RSS feed. And if you want to send any questions for Jim and Alan or your feedback, you can email show at 2.5admins.com. Okay, Paul writes, I'm contractually obligated to run anti-malware scans on all of my Linux servers. I'm not convinced this makes sense from a technical point of view, but begrudgingly, I've been using ClamAV for this purpose. It turns out ClamAV is very resource-hungry, especially on RAM, and difficult to rein in, currently using IONICE and NICE. Also, I've heard Jim remark not to use ClamAV in a previous episode. I'm running Ubuntu Server on AWS and Proxmox on-premise. Any recommendations on how to deal with such a situation? Absolutely. There are a few options here. One is a Sophos antivirus for Linux. I have not used it personally. I do have uh, some some good friends and former colleagues who work at Sophos and do great work. So I'm inclined to think well of it, although I haven't used it in anger. Uh, there's also Bitdefender Endpoint Security. That has uh, a Linux version as well as the, the usual Windows and one presumes Mac. And then the final option, I just have had opportunity to use very recently because a large client of mine got acquired by an entity that uses Carbon Black by VMware, and Carbon Black has a Linux agent. I can't really tell you anything great about detection on any of those because, as probably nobody will be surprised, I don't really have malware issues on Linux that traditional AV solves. But I can tell you, at least with Carbon Black, I have not observed any significant impact on the hosts I've installed it on. I've installed it in, inside some Linux VMs and also on the hosts themselves. And I haven't observed any load spikes or changes in the way either the hosts or the guests operate after installing Carbon Black, which frankly, when it comes to AV for Linux, is about the, the highest kudos I can give it. So if you're just contractually obligated to do the thing and check the box, any of those three ought to fit the bill. Yeah, it's getting to be pretty common either with your contract for the company you work with or even just like your insurance for cybersecurity or errors and emissions and, and network and so on to have requirements like this. And I think some of even credit card processing like PCI DSS has requirements for this type of thing. And so, yeah, having a solution better than Claim AV is kind of important. But yes, the, you know, actually do do something. Don't just brush on it rug like some people do because... While it's not common, this type of stuff can happen to Linux and BSD and so on. And so having some way to detect when things like this are happening is really useful. The interesting thing about Carbon Black is uh, Carbon Black leans a lot heavier on AI techniques to detect changes in patterns of activity. My understanding is it's almost entirely heuristics rather than the traditional signature-based, you know, yada, yada, yada. So you can get some more interesting reporting from a carbon black endpoint than you do from a traditional AV. And uh, I think maybe the detection of things that go wrong, it's possible that you might figure out some things with carbon black that you wouldn't with the others. 
because it's not looking for a signature, it's it's looking for a change in the observed patterns of those machines. So even if it's not a, you know, a traditional automated malware issue at all, but more along the lines of, you know, oh, you know, an APT shelled in and started exfilling data, there's a non-zero chance Carbon Black will recognize, hey, something got really hinky with the system and maybe you ought to look at it. And if you're actually paying attention to those metrics, it may very well lead you someplace you need to go where just installing a traditional AV is not likely to accomplish a whole lot. Exactly. A lot of it is more about that pattern analysis and just, is this machine doing something it didn't used to do? And some degree of that's just your own monitoring, but things like Carbon Black really help step that up and watching for things like data exfiltration and so on. And just a lot of times detecting these breaches is about just knowing what's normal and noticing when something isn't. Okay, Peter says, my senior engineer really is senior. I'm talking pre-phone freaking era. So when Jim talks about folks old enough to remember the days when it genuinely might make more sense to avoid updates because they're more likely to break your computer than fix it, well, yeah, for the last 22 years in my current job, nothing is more verboten than doing updates. I'm trying to update this policy. I found the article Managing Boot Environments at clarasystems.com very interesting. Is this a technique that can be used when implementing automatic security patches, or would this approach require a manual process? The holy grail, it seems, is an automated immediate patch with a simple reboot fallback. What would it take to achieve this dream, or at least get close? It almost already there. Uh, So yeah, the way boot environments work, you can do two different methods of it. Uh, The first one is before you install the next automatic update, you basically snapshot the system and make a boot environment called, you know, before then or whatever. And then you're basically always updating the live system, but you're keeping snapshots that you can roll back to. The important thing here is that you've separated out the operating system from the data that needs to persist. So like if you're running a database or your website or whatever, you want those files in separate ZFS data sets so those won't roll back and only the operating system bits will so that you can undo the patch but not undo changes to your database. So there's a tool in FreeBSD called BECTL. It's generic to ZFS, so probably could even be used on Linux. We're looking at putting it in the open ZFS repo as an official part of ZFS even. But booting... Linux from ZFS is a bit more complicated. Um, there are tools like it. Uh, it's called like zfsbootmenu.org or something mm-hmm. that's got it mostly working. And yeah, it basically allows you to keep different versions of your root file system and be able to select a different one. So yeah, when you know a version's good, you set that as the, the default boot environment, and then you can keep advancing with more updates. And if something reboots unexpectedly, it can roll back to the, the previous one and uninstall those updates. Although it keeps the updated version too, so that you can kind of surf back and forth as needed. It also gives you that option of, by keeping multiple versions, you know that it turns out it was two updates ago that actually introduced the problem. Being able to go all the way back to the one before that can be really helpful, or even just being able to bisect by trying those different versions. FreeBSD used a system called NanoBSD for a long time, where there'd be like two partitions on the disk and you'd ping pong back and forth with updates, but it meant you only had one older version to fall back to, but with ZFS, you can have many. I'm just marveling over the fact that you casually say ioctal all the time, but you don't say bechtel. Literally, sometimes it comes down to just the way you heard it first or read it first. Because yeah, I say sysctl, but I say ioctal. <laughs> so what about Linux though? Like it's not really ready for prime time. You've said many times ZFS on root. 
It depends on the type of security updates you're talking about here. If you're using Ubuntu, it pretty much is. You just need something like ZFS boot menu to actually give you the menu early in the boot process, let you pick a different version if you need. Mm -hmm. I don't think there's any official support on Linux for the temporary boot environment. So on FreeBSD, there's a flag you can set on a boot environment saying, boot this next time. But as soon as you boot it, erase this flag so that you go back to using whatever the default is. So it lets you try and upgrade. If it doesn't work, you power cycle and it goes back to the old version. I know Delphix proposed a patch to Grub to add that feature, but I don't think it ever made it into a version of Grub that ships with any distro yet. I don't think the ZFS boot, or ZFS boot menu thing supports that one yet either. But other than that, as long as you have a thing where, you know, when you update your kernel, your version of ZFS is going to stay in sync and not break, then it's it should work perfectly fine on Linux too. And to be fair, the, the flag is, it, it's a nice thing to have, but the the important part is just having multiple versions to boot into to begin with. I do not really recommend trying to automate the crap out of finding like the exact boot environment at boot time by algorithm, you're liable to cause yourself problems more frequently than you save yourself from them. I think that when you're in a case of thinking, oh, I think my whole system is screwed up and I need to roll it back, you should probably involve a human at that point. Yeah, like uh, what the built-in features in ZFS that I helped write do are you can have your default boot environment. This is what's going to boot every time you boot. And then you can have a, a boot once flag on a certain one saying, next time only, try the new version or fall back to the old version. But you wouldn't really use the temporary flag on the fallback case because you want every reboot, you want to go stay on the old version in that case. So you would set the old version as default and you could say, try the new version one time, we'll reboot, we'll run. If there's a problem, we're just going to reboot, it'll go back to the old version and nobody else has to touch anything. But if it works, then we can make that new version that we've just been running temporarily, the new default, and know that that's safe. But yeah, like Jim said, it's all about just having those copies of the root file system. So that's basically snapshotting it and cloning it in the right way that it's going to show up in the menu when you're debugging the system. Having the menu is the important part. I mean, by the, by the time it gets down to like, you can pick a date stamp that an update was applied and like, you know, boot to that one, like that's simplified enough. If you need it simpler than that, you're not competent to operate a server. I'm sorry, that's just kind of where that is. If you can't, if your troubleshooting skills don't extend to, I should try yesterday's environment instead of this one since it won't boot, now nah, you need to hire somebody. I, I would also like to clarify, yes, I have said before that um, ZFS boot on Linux is, is not really what I would consider ready from prime time, but you have to understand what I mean by prime time when I say that. The situation for ZFS booting Linux distributions now is roughly where it was for, uh, you know, booting FreeBSD on a ZFS route in about like, eh, like 2010 or so, back when you had to kind of go through a special install procedure to get the thing to work. And like I wrote a couple of FAQs on doing that for, uh, when was the change? And was it from FreeBSD 7 to 8, I think, that the procedure changed for how to do a, an, an install on ZFS root? Probably, yeah. I wrote both of those and I built a lot of FreeBSD systems that booted from that and it worked and it was fine. It, the The thing is, like, you have to be willing to commit to I'm doing a non-standard kind of hinky thing and 
I am going to support that in return for the good stuff I get back out of it, as opposed to just like, well, this is completely ready from prime time. It's in the installer. You know, you just run through it and it works and it's supported directly by, you know, the the vendor who is distributing this operating system to begin with. We're not there yet, but we are at the point where I was happily booting FreeBSD from root for years. The big reason beyond that that I say that I don't personally bother, again, comes down to the fact that I don't really care about the host. Everything that I care about happens inside the guests, and they are on ZFS. In my deployments with the 100-plus FreeBSD servers, basically everything that's the host OS install is disposable. Mm -hmm. Like, if something goes wrong with it, we would just reinstall it. And then we have the other stuff that's backed up separately and, and would be able to be restored or whatever. But we do end up using this because it's faster to ZFS send a new boot environment and say, boot this next time, and if it works, make it permanent, than it is to repave the server each time. And it just makes upgrades smoother. So in newer versions of FreeBSD, the FreeBSD update tool that applies security patches will detect if you have boot environment set up and automatically make one before it installs the update. So that, again, you're getting more and more to this. And I think you can configure a hook so that it will also create a new one before it runs a package upgrade every time you run package upgrade, uh, meaning that, again, if anything goes wrong, you can really easily roll back from it. And when you do that, you don't undo changes to your home directory and, and other things that aren't the operating system. At risk of being fired again by you guys, there might still be people listening who are shouting at their headphones or their car stereo, what about ButterFS? Well, yeah, what about it? <laughs> what, what, are, what are you looking for out of this, Joe? <laughs> I think probably what Joe is fishing for is the fact that there are some distributions that uh, build similar butter-based tools in right now. Like I think OpenSUSE uh, uses something called Snapper by default, so that if you're using uh, butter for your root file system, it will automatically take a snapshot before it does a... Uh, I forget, what is it, zipper update, I think, on OpenSUSE, and you can roll back to that afterwards. Although, you know, <laughs> freaking, but it's it's never as simple as that. Um, you can get back to where you were with Butter, but it's annoyingly obtuse to somebody who's used to being able to just say ZFS rollback <laughs> data set at snapshot. With Butter, things get a little bit more complex, but you can get to the same place in the end. The problem is that just you're still using Butter with all of Butter's problems. And as nice as something like Snapper is, I would love to have that facility on my Linux systems, but I would not love it so much that I'm willing to expose myself to all the problems that Butter will cause me. Well, I had to mention it just in case. Right. Well, we'd better get out of here then. Remember, show at 2.5admins.com is the email address to send any questions or feedback. You can find me on Twitter at Joe Rissington. I'm at JRSSNet. And I'm at Alan Jude. We'll see you next week.